So I'm Danielle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Spark, and you just met my um, adorable pastor, Kevin, husband, and um, it's really convenient. If you're going to be a pastor who wants to plant a church, you should marry somebody who can also play guitar. Um, So that's just, you know, I was thinking that 14 years ago. Yeah. Can he play guitar? All right. Well, then... Then we'll make this work. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, we're so glad you're all here. There is a community of people that have been here planning and, and dreaming and building this Spark community together. So part of what we hope is that um, you get to know this community. So for us, church begins before it, the music starts. I don't know if that makes sense. But it begins when you start showing up and chatting with one another, getting to know one another, getting to know Tony, the amazing barista in the back. Woohoo, Tony! Um, and it also continues after the music and the teaching is over as you all hang out until we flick the lights on and off and ask you politely to leave. So um, we're so thrilled that you're all here and that you've been starting to create some community together and with us. And um, as pastors who've been pastoring for two decades each, I think I'll just speak for myself and Kevin because I can do that because I've been married for a while. Um, It's fun to come to church. Thanks. We haven't always loved going to church, even though we've loved all the churches we've worked at and they've been wonderful. Um, But we're really, it's just for us personally, you have created the kind of church we want to come to. So thanks for being here and for letting us come to church every week. It's been a blessing. All right, Spark has, woohoo, go God, yeah. Um, Spark is founded on five core values, and for the last few weeks, we've been focusing in on the value of love. Um, the first week, uh, we really talked about how, to, how much God loves us, and then last week, we talked about how loving God and loving our neighbor is our frame for everything. That it's our opportunity to love God back, and this week, we're focusing in specifically on loving our neighbor. This is a hard thing to do. I don't know if you've ever tried it, Um, but I even have dear neighbors in the room here tonight, two houses over, and they're terrible. It's really difficult to love them. I'm just joking. They're phenomenal. Uh, So anyway, we're going to really focus in on loving your neighbor, and in this story, we're going to focus on the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and someone will hand you a blue Bible. I like to teach the Bible, so we're going to get in it and have some fun. The other thing you're going to need is one of these fancy dancy handouts. Ooh, wow. It's like church is happening. So if you don't have a fancy dancy handout or if you need a Bible, um, then you can grab a Bible. And we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. And if you have a blue Bible, that's on page 725. 725. And we're going to look on in at this story. Now, a lot of us know the parable of the Good Samaritan because we even have laws in the United States that talk about Good Samaritan laws. We are familiar with the the need for somebody to help somebody else in need. I don't know if you watched um, some of the coverage from Hurricane Sandy um, this last week and the devastation that's going on in the East Coast. And we've been praying for our neighbors and friends there. And as that's been going on, I ran into a story last night online where this gentleman was in his apartment building, and he looked out and he saw a cab driver stuck in water that was waist high and slowly climbing up to the neck. And this gentleman didn't know the driver, didn't know anything, but but left out of the safety of the building and went out into the middle of the rushing floodwaters to help this guy get out of the cab and rescued him, but didn't know the guy's name, snapped one picture really quick before they both went on their way. And as he was doing this and as he walked out into 
into that water. And then as he came back in, he was thinking, I could die. And he has a little girl. And he was thinking, my family will take care of my little girl because, and this was his quote, I can't be the kind of person that watches somebody else die and not do something about it. And so that's a good Samaritan act, but it's also where we often get the laws that cover good Samaritan behavior in our, in our society. Um, people who may not even know where the original story comes from, but we're familiar that if somebody's in help and you hear that cry for help, that it's your responsibility as a human being to respond to that. Well, that ethic comes from this story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place he saw and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, went to him, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? For the man who, to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's the end of our reading. Now this story, you're probably familiar with, but we're going to try to break it down and understand a little bit of where it's happening, where Jesus places the story, and who the players are. Now the first question that I want to focus in on is exactly what the teacher comes to Jesus and says, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Two questions there. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, is Jesus the first person to ever figure out that loving God and loving your neighbor was, was the right thing to do? No, because here we have a teacher in the law answering Jesus with that question, answering his question. Hi, excuse me. Hi, Gabe. How you doing, buddy? I can hear him shouting Danny Danny from the back. Hi, good to see you. And I don't think it's going to stop until I said hi, so I just need to say hi. By the way, uh, it's okay to stop your sermon and talk to kids. Jesus said so. I saw him do it one time. All right. So uh, that will continue to be the spark way to uh, definitely address adorable nephews from the back who are shouting your name. Uh, Okay, so here we go. We have a teacher in the law responding to Jesus' question saying, love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's great. You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. 
Now, where does that come from? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, there are other places where they go up to Jesus and they say, what do you say is the number one commandment? And he says the same thing. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where that comes from, and it's called the Shema in Hebrew. Say Shema. Great. Shema means hear, listen, pay attention. It's sort of like when your mother says to you, take out the garbage, and then five minutes later she sees that you're still sitting in front of the TV, and she says to you, did you hear me? Right? She's not asking, did you actually auditorially hear me say, take the, out the garbage? She's saying, did you do it yet? So there's a listen and obedience to pay attention to. And it comes from this first word in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might or strength. Now the next t- verse that Jesus pulls in there is from Leviticus 19. And so does the teacher of the law. And he says this verse from Leviticus 19, 18. We're going to read 17 as well. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus takes these two verses, and so does the teacher in the law. This was his community at that time. And they say, well, God says, love the Lord your God, in Hebrew, ve'ahavta, and you shall love. And then here when we get to the you shall love your neighbor, the same word in Hebrew is used, ve'ahavta la'reacha kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself. And so those two words get linked, even though they're from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and they say these two commands belong together. So when it's asked, what's the number one commandment or what do you, what's the centrality of our Jewish faith in the first century? The answer is love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Leviticus 19, it continues on to give further definition of this. And it says in verse 33 and 34, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God continues to give the people instructions to say, love God, love your neighbor, and just in case you were thinking that that only meant other Israelites, I'm going to extend that and explain to you that that means foreigners who live amongst you as well, because you were once foreigners in Egypt. And so we as people of God remember that we once were not the in crowd. Has anybody here ever been not in the in crowd? Yes, hopefully all of us at some point have felt what it's like to not be the in crowd, to be a foreigner in our own land. Maybe you've even felt that way in your own home. At those different points, Jesus' response, and God's response here as he's teaching us in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, is to say we're supposed to love everyone. Now, the person, the teacher of the law, says, okay, but I have a good question here. He wants to justify himself. This is such an easy answer. What are we supposed to do? Love everybody. Got that. Love God. Got that. Everyone agrees. So he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, because he's brilliant, answers the question with a story. And he's going to help the gentleman figure out who a neighbor truly is based upon the story. 
So let's look now at the story, and as we unpack this further, we've now set the stage with a teacher of the law, a Torah teacher, asking a question everybody asks, and now we want to understand where Jesus sets the story. So he starts to talk, and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. So in case you haven't yet been to Israel, and you hopefully can come with us some year soon, I wanted to show you a little bit about where we're looking. Okay, so here's a map. Now you have a copy of this map, and the map's going to be important to how we sort of start to unpack the story a little bit because of what's going on. Now if you pull out your map, there's two maps of the same land, but from different periods of time. One is from the divided kingdom right after the death of King Solomon which is a long time before Jesus. And then the other one is from the time of Jesus, the one on the right. Okay? Now, right now, we're just going to look at the locations of Jericho and Jerusalem, and then we'll go deeper into what this terrain looks like. Here's Jerusalem. You see nicely circled for you in red. And here's Jericho. Now, Jericho is in... Um, can you guys see? Can you kind of see the terrain? Jericho's down here, right down here, falling off the map, in the wadi of the Dead Sea. Uh, sorry, the, the Valley of the Dead Sea, that Dead Sea Jordan Rift Valley as it goes north and south. Jerusalem is up there towards the Mediterranean Sea in the center of the country of the hill country. Between Jerusalem and Jericho, that walk is between 15 to 20 miles. And today, if you were to take it the whole way and you worked hard with a group of people, maybe you could do it in about eight hours. But guess what? It's not just that it's 15 to 20 miles, depending upon which way you go. It's also about 800 feet below sea level here and 2,500 feet above sea level there. So that's a walk up, in case you didn't know how that math went, all right? So that's a walk up. If they're going up to Jerusalem, they're walking up. And if they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they're going down. Okay, your ears are popping as you hike. Now, as they're going down, by the way, in the Bible, you never go down to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is where God lives. He's everywhere, and we all know that. But there was also a place in Jerusalem where that was God's house. And that's where we go to worship. So you never go down to God. You always go up to God. And we heard one rabbi say that even if you were parachuting out of an airplane, above in the air, down to Jerusalem, you'd still be going up to Jerusalem because that's where God's house was, okay? So here we have right at the beginning of our story, Jesus knows his geography. He's probably traveled this road several times. It's the primary road where you'd be going to get up to Jerusalem if you were coming from the north because if you were in Jesus' day, you're going to avoid the region of Samaria, entirely. Okay, so they're going to start to make this track, and here Jesus sets us up. They're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if this man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, then he's not on his way to worship God. He's leaving, perhaps, where he was worshiping God and heading down to Jericho. Does that terrain look tough? Yes, and it can be quite warm. Um, Jericho's down here. Now, this is the road, Here's the road. Ooh, can't you see? Beautiful freeway. No. It's a tough road. Can you still see the road? It's not this. It's in here. This is the ancient road. Let's keep looking a little bit closer. It's down in here. This is the ancient road. Yep, right down in here. 
the ancient road. And Mark Twain, in 1869, when he traveled through Israel, he said of this place that there were bandits and Bedouin like marauders there that would attack as you would walk on the road. That was still true in 1869. So when Jesus says there was a man on this road who got attacked by robbers, it's likely that people weren't surprised because this was a road where people knew that they'd be traveling back and forth from Jerusalem to Jericho or from Jericho to Jerusalem. If they were going to the temple, they might be taking money for an offering. And so they're on this road, and Mark Twain says even when he was there, not in Jesus' day, In 1869, there were still people attacking. And so here's us walking on the road. And it's a road, isn't it? Can you put it in quotes? Like, it's a road. Um, It's a single-person path. We're not walking that way single file because we think that's cute. Um, We're doing that because it's a very narrow road. And if you were to not try to walk single file, you'd fall off. This is going to come into play for Jesus' telling of the story. Now, Gertrude Bell, who's one of my heroes, um, was, she's the Lawrence of Arabia, the female Lawrence of Arabia. Um, in 1907, she, I just have to show you this awesome picture of her, by the way. This is her with all the men. Now, can you imagine doing that in the early 1900s? There, I mean, she learned how to speak Arabic. She traveled by herself, and she would say, come on, pack my stuff up, let's go. I want to go see this archaeological site, and I want to understand about it. So she kept a diary and wrote a book called The Desert and the Sown. And in her account, she says this, the road dips east, the Jericho Road dips east and crosses a dry water course, which has been the scene of many tragedies. Under the banks, the Bedouin used to lie in wait to rob and murder pilgrims as they passed. Fifteen years ago, the Jericho Road was as lawless a track as the country that lies beyond the Jordan. So Gertrude Bell is saying in the early 1900s that it's still a dangerous place to go. How much more so then in the ancient world in Jesus' day? Okay? It wasn't that you couldn't travel that way. It's just that people were opportunists and they knew that you were traveling that way. And there wasn't a lot of, where are you going to run to? Did you see the road? Now, here's a place where we took this picture where we, you could see hiding places in the wadi as you would go down towards Jericho, where people could hide and then pounce on travelers as they could come through. And there's us again, and you can see that if all of a sudden some robbers came at you, where would you go? Unless you have feet like a mountain goat, you're stuck. So, Jesus starts to tell this story, and he says... A man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by robbers. They strip him of his clothes, beat him, and go away, leaving him half dead. In the Greek, dying. He's dying. A priest happened happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. Now, if the priest is going down, does he have to worry about issues of cleanliness? Because he's not going to the temple to work. So he doesn't have to worry about those issues. And in fact, in Jesus' day, as we've seen very clearly, the command to love God and then love your neighbor is the highest command. And so if this person then is passing by on the other side of the road, and by the way, should you laugh now, Jesus is funny. How is he going to pass by, by the way? Is it possible to pass by? No, it's kind of like this. Oh, dying guy. Right? And a big step over dying guy right? Because it's not like he didn't see him. It's not like he can't, he is avoiding touching this man and helping this person. So a priest who we would expect to stop and help doesn't in Jesus's story. 
And then a Levite, whom we'd also expect to stop to help, doesn't in this story that Jesus tells. And now this teacher of the law, this Torah teacher who has the whole thing memorized, is probably thinking, yes. Because typically the stories went a priest, a Levite, and a Pharisee. And then the Pharisee's doing the good thing. The real good thing. They taught great things, wonderful things all the time. In fact, Jesus' theology is very, very close to that of the Pharisees. And so we really expect at this point the hero of the story to be somebody in the same club as the teacher of the law who's asking the questions. But instead, Jesus is really funny, and he does this thing, and he says, a Samaritan. Now let's understand a bit about Samaritans. Here are a group of Samaritans today, modern-day Samaria. The Samaritans are literally not in the tribe of Israel according to the Jewish thought in Jesus' day. So now let's pull out our map again and look at what happened, and we'll do a bit of the history of the Samaritans. Because all we know is we say, wow, that person was a good Samaritan. We mean that, that they did a good deed. But let's understand what Jesus' audience heard when they heard the word Samaritan. On the left page, the left map, we're going to look at what happened in the time of the kingdom's division. The kingdoms, the northern kingdom rebels against the southern kingdom. And here's where things get confusing and difficult. So hang with me for two minutes. The northern kingdom takes the name Israel. Which is weird because you'd expect all of the people of God to have the name Israel. So when you start reading your Bible and you get confused at this point, give yourself a pat on the back. It's okay. They're going to change names on you. And the southern kingdom becomes Judah. Okay? Now that name is going to stay that way until... After the Israelites, all of them return, just prior, about a few hundred years prior to the time of Jesus, when they return from Babylon, then they all take the name Israel again, okay? So does that kind of make sense? The terminology shifts and changes a bit. What happens is after the kingdom divides, now there's animosity. There's brothers against brothers. We're angry and upset, and that northern kingdom with Manasseh and Ephraim, we don't really like them down in the south, and in the north, they don't really like us. So there's animosity between brothers. Now, at the beginning, things are still kind of going back and forth. But once God's judgment starts to hit his people, he has the northern kingdom fall to the Assyrians. And they're deported. The northern kingdom of Israel is deported, taken away in exile by the Assyrians in 722 BC. But what happens right away is that the king of Assyria realizes that he needs to actually send some people back to take care of the land. So he sends some of those people back, but they intermarry and mix in with the Assyrians. So for the southern kingdom, we don't like them, and now they're mixing with the enemy. We really don't like them. So we're now referring to the people in the northern kingdom as half-breeds. They've intermarried. Yes, they used to be part of those tribes that were part of us, but they rebelled a long time ago, and now they've intermarried, and now we don't like them at all. And in fact, there's such a division that the Samaritans have their own place of worship, and we have our own place of worship. And so all of this has separated the people of God. Now, in 586 BC, about 200 years later, a little less, the southern kingdom is also exiled, and they go to Babylon. Now, in the meantime, the Samaritans are staying. They're in the land. So they watch all their southern kingdom neighbors in Judah get kicked out. And then they come back about seven years later. But we think they picked up some pretty nasty habits in Babylon. 
They're acting pretty crazy, us in the north. We look at them, we're like, I don't think that's how that goes. I think you picked up that Babylonian weird stuff. You know, you're over there in Babylon, and you come home, you speak a little bit differently, and you might talk a little bit differently. And there even ends up being so many Jews that stay in Babylon that there's a Babylonian Talmud of te- collection of the teachings and writings, and then there's one for Jerusalem. I mean, we in the north, we're not really sure that they're real Jews. And all of a sudden, this conversation starts to constantly be combative and happening between these two people groups, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the Israelites or the Jewish people from Judah versus the Samaritans. And everyone's fighting back and forth. Now, it gets really nasty. And I know you guys are hanging with me for just a little bit more history. You guys okay? We're going to understand. I know you just never knew you need to know this for the Peril of Good Samaritans. It's true. 300 years before Jesus, the Greeks come in and they use Samaria as the base of their operations to attack the whole land. So now we really don't like the Samaritans. We don't just have ancient history represented in that old map on the left, but now we have current history. And then a few years after that, in 128 BC, we in the south, the Judahites, the the Jews, we retaliate against Samaria by destroying their temple on the summit of Mount Gerizim. So do you think they're angry with us? 128 BC, just 120 years before the time of Jesus, we've destroyed their temple. So then they get angry. And so a few years before the birth of Jesus, they come to our temple in Jerusalem and they bring dead body bones with them and scatter them all around in the temple area on the eve of Passover. So now we can't celebrate Passover because the area is unclean and Samaritans did that just before Jesus' birth. So do you start to hear how there's a constant discussion about who's right, who's wrong, who's angry, who wants to get at the other? Today, I would refer to this as tribalism. Maybe they did then too. Here we're looking at, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and then fraction and, and everything else started to happen, and exile and coming back and return. And these people are literally in the north, the Samaritans, literally from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, now intermarried and mixed in, but from our tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're sitting there saying, I don't like you anymore, and I don't think I'm related to you, and I'm pretty sure you're not my brother. And so we voted them out of the larger tribe. Get it? We do this today, don't we? It's very human to decide who is the other. Do you know what I'm saying by the other? Like, it's us versus them. And they're the other, and we're not the other. And we've figured it out, and they haven't figured it out. And they need Jesus, and I don't, because I already have him, right? And we start to figure out, and we vote people in and out of the tribe based upon which box they check, based upon how they behave, based upon where they worship, just like they did in Jesus' day. Remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well? Well, we worship here, and you worship there, and we don't really... I mean, there's voting in and out. Do you worship the one true God of Israel? I don't know. You're a Samaritan. I don't think you do. In fact, this tension was so great in Jesus' day that if a Samaritan touched something, a knife, a, a vessel, a container, it was now unclean, and somebody from Jerusalem, from Judea, would never, ever touch the thing that the Samaritan touched. So we don't even touch each other. And not only won't I touch you, I won't touch the thing you touched. 
Because your germs, your cooties got on the thing. And I'm not going to get those cooties on my thing. And so we're not going to touch each other. And we're not to touch each other's things. And we're not going to worship in the same place. And I'm going to make your stuff unclean. And you're going to make my stuff unclean. And we're angry with each other. And we're fighting. And we do not like one another. So in the middle of that type of tension, Jesus says, So then a Samaritan. A what? They're not human. They're half-breeds. We don't talk to them. They're worse than Romans. I mean, at least the Romans are Gentiles, and we know they're Gentiles, but these Samaritans are completely mixed up, and they're completely ridiculous, and they've totally, I mean, we, uh, no. Now, let's, let me tell you about the Samaritan. When the Samaritan traveled, he came to where, where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And I love this next verse in verse 34. It says, he went to him. Just hold that. The Samaritan actually went to the man that was dying, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey. Has there been touching? There's some touching. Put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out, so he stayed the night with the guy. The next day, he takes out two denarii, gives them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Here comes the question. So tell me, teacher of the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The man can't even get out the name Samaritan. He can't get the word out. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And he identifies the action and the behavior with the neighbor. And Jesus then says, go and do likewise. What? So this is starting to blow the minds of everybody who's sitting in that room. This isn't just about, oh, did you see somebody skin their knee? Go help them. Good job. Good job, you. And now you go and be that nice person to the next person who skins and falls their knees, falls on their knee. Let's be honest. It's really easy to love somebody who's, who's dying. As far as I can see, this guy is not fighting off the help, right? He's not angry that he's being helped. He's probably very thankful. He's half dead, so he may not even know that he's being helped, but he's being helped. And I find it really easy to help people when they're in that situation. I find it really easy to be that kind of neighbor, the one that swoops in in dramatic ways and helps and helps and helps and then leaves. How easy. How fantastic, right? It's really hard to love the neighbor who's fighting with you. It's really hard to love the neighbor whose bumper sticker disagrees with your bumper sticker. It's really hard to love the friend on Facebook. I just wanted to post a few weeks ago, dear friends on Facebook, please stop posting your political opinions. I'd like to pretend we still have something in common. And I just mean that all the time when we throw those little statements out, and you still don't know what I believe by that statement, by the way. When you throw those little statements out, we've decided who's in and who's out right away. You think this, I think this, therefore we can't be friends, or we can be friends, or we, oh, I knew you thought that too, or, or did you check the box? Yes, I believe in Jesus. You check the box, awesome, then we're friends. Oh, you didn't check the box, I'll pray for you. And so we have these kind of connections where we've immediately decided who is the other and who isn't the other. And what Jesus is saying here isn't so much that in order to be a neighbor, you have to swoop in and do dramatic acts, although that is true, but he's also telling this teacher of the law that the Samaritan is his neighbor. 
And that's blowing his mind. It's changing everything. Those people up there, they're my neighbor. They're the one. Now, let's just take a look. This guy, again, is an expert in the law, an expert. He knows it all. A teacher of the Torah, a teacher of the law, meaning he has it memorized. Yes, I said memorized. People did not have pocket iPhones with uh, searchable Bibles. Did you know? They can't, he can't just say, oh, I wonder if Jesus is talking about something else. He has the whole thing memorized. And so the moment when you're reading in the Gospels and you start to see that Jesus is having a conversation with another teacher, at that moment, your bells should be going off and saying, ah, he's having a theological, academic, professional colleague conversation. There must be some more going on in this conversation. Maybe I'm missing something. Oh, yes, let's find out. Second Chronicles, we're going to look at Second Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 8. This is an event that happened right after the kingdom had divided, a few kings later after the division of the kingdom. So we've got the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah. And Jerusalem is the main city in the southern kingdom and Samaria is the main city in the northern kingdom. So if you hear Samaria or Israel, you're thinking north. And if you hear Judah or Jerusalem, you're thinking south. Okay, let's read this story beginning in verse 8. There's just been a war. Let me just tell you really quick. There's just been a war between the northern and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom won. Okay? They have decided to take all the plunder and all the prisoners and bring them back to Samaria. Let's read in verse 8. The men of Israel took captive from their fellow Israelites who were from Judah, 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. And they carried back a great deal of plunder. They took back a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there. And he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. And he said to them, you know, because the Lord was angry with you, with your ancestors, and was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you've slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves? But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites you've taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. And some of the leaders in Ephraim, Azariah, son of Jehonahan, and Barakiah, son of Meshillamoth, and Jehezekiah, son of Shalom, and Amasa, son of Hadlai, confronted those who were arriving from the war. And they said, don't bring those prisoners here, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? For our guilt's already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials in the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners, and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes, sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. And all those who were weak they put on donkeys, and they took them back, their fellow Israelites, to Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. Turn your piece of paper with the maps over and let's look. 
Now remember that this teacher, this expert in the law, would have had Second Chronicles down by memory. And not just him, but everybody else in the crowd sitting in and listening to this discussion with Jesus, they know this book and they know this story. And this story is of the time when Samaritans returned us, Judahites, to our land and took care of us, even though they won the battle. So Jesus knows this, and so he starts to remind the listeners that even though you may have forgotten that Samaritans are your brother, I'm going to, your brothers, I'm going to remind you of that through the story. So if you'll look at your chart, you start to see on this side of the paper where the, the words start to become the same. Do you notice? Let's look. Men of Israel took captive fellow Israelites. Again, that question of who is my neighbor. A neighbor is, of course, my fellow Israelite. And they were from, they, so then they have Samaria. Do you see Samaria popping up on Second Chronicles 28? So the story occurs with Samaritans acting good towards people in the south. And then Jesus starts to take the geography and set it in the same place. Jericho, Jericho. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Samaria, Samaria. And when Judah was taken prisoner, they were naked, they were hurting, they needed healing balm, and they needed to be put on donkeys and sent back home. And what does the Samaritan do? He clothes the man, he puts him on a donkey, he pours oil and wine on his wounds, and he takes him back to the inn and takes care of him. So by the end of that story, Jesus has decided to tell everybody that the other is my brother. Because this story from 2 Chronicles is about when the tribes were still close, close enough to remember, those are your brothers, those are your fellow Israelites. You've done that to them. Send them back home. Take care of them. And now Jesus is taking the parable of the Good Samaritan, laying it right into that same geography, right into that same story, and saying, now, don't just remember to love somebody that's fallen down on the side of the road. Remember that the Samaritan is your brother. And that sounds nuts. So not only do I have to love my neighbor, not only do I have to love the other, but now you're telling me that the other is my brother? And Jesus' answer is yes. The other is your brother. Every person that you meet, Samaritans are your brothers. The other is your sister, your sister from another mister, your brother from another mother, right? Like Jesus' point in this story isn't just be nice to dying people on the side of the road and make sure to call 911. His point in the story is that that person that you hate, the most hated person I could put into the story, a Samaritan, is the one who's acting like a neighbor, is the one who's loving and caring, just like they did way back in Second Chronicles 28. Don't forget when you still considered them your brother and when they still considered you their brother. Does that make sense? Is Jesus awesome? Just pulls that story, reminds everybody of that. And yet if you didn't know the word of God and you didn't come here tonight happening to have Second Chronicles 28 memorized, it's okay. The story still can speak to us either way. But isn't there something rich about seeing how Jesus is taking this and bringing more meaning to it to the teacher and the law? So the other is my brother. That means if you like the people on the top or the people on the bottom, they're your brothers. Who have you decided is the other in our community today? 
Have we as a community decided that the other is anyone who would attend the gay pride parade in San Francisco? Or have we as a community decided that the other is anybody who would protest in a mean and grumpy way or even in a not-so-mean way that parade? Maybe for you the other is the rich. Or maybe for you the other is the poor. Don't you hear that language so frequently? I mean, particularly it's that crazy time right now where the elections are coming up. And poor people in Ohio, I heard they have 300 new ads a day in Ohio. And that's why that little girl was crying this week. I mean, she's like, I can't take it anymore. But it's because we've decided who the other is. And so we keep voting people off the island. We even have a game show for this. It's Survivor. Like, I've decided who the other is. It's everyone but me. I'm the one that gets to win. And so we've decided, you know what, those people are poor because they haven't taken personal responsibility. They haven't worked hard enough. I mean, I worked hard and I, I built it. You didn't build it. I built it. And we have all these ridiculous conversations. And then maybe for you, the others, anybody who would go see ballet. I mean, that's just weird. That person is the other. And the other person like, anyone go see Monster Truck. That's the other. Those people are bonkers. Like, I'm not the kind of person who would watch Monster Truck. I mean, that's another person. They may not, fine, they can go, but I'm not going to, or fine, you can go to ballet, but I'm not going with you. Or maybe the others, anyone who watches TV because I read books right? How have you decided, oh, we don't have a TV. You know, we don't, we don't have, we don't have cable because we like to read. And basically that means if you have a TV and you watch anything on cable, you must be a loser because I've just decided in my language that you are now the other. Or maybe you love Google and hate Yahoo. Or maybe you love Yahoo and you hate Google and you've decided that one or the other is the other. Or maybe it's Apple and Microsoft and those people are out and these people are in, and I've decided who is the other, and I can determine that by how you open your computer and which search engine pops right up for you. Or maybe you've decided that the others live there or there, red state, blue state. We live our life by voting people in and out of our own personal tribes. We live our life by saying, you're the other, and I like this guy, and I don't like that guy, or you like that guy, and I don't like this guy, and so therefore you're the other. And now we're going to have really wonderfully mean conversations about how to discuss all of that. Or maybe you've decided you'd really just rather vote for that guy or that guy. And so you're just sitting there going, I don't want to vote for those other two guys, but I'll vote for these two guys. And so if you like Stuart and you don't like Colbert or you like Colbert and you don't like Stuart, then I can or cannot be friends with you and you're the other based on that. Or maybe it's Catholics, Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists. And in all of that, we've said you are the other. And I cannot have a conversation with you, or I can't share life with you, or I just choose not to. Who is the other for you? Because what it seems to me that Jesus is saying is that in his economy, that the other is our brother, and that we have no choice but to love them. Maybe the other is in your own home. Maybe the other shares a bedroom with you. Maybe the other sits across the dinner table with you. Maybe the other are your parents as they fight and you can't listen anymore. Or maybe it's your kids and they're the other this week and you just can't stand them anymore. And Jesus' response is love. His response to all of that is love. And it's not just love the people you like, love the people you've decided to vote in on your tribe. His response is love everyone, including your enemies and including the other. And so then we ask this question, how on earth do I do that? 
Because it's really easy to love the person that's sick and dying and can't talk back and doesn't have a bumper sticker on their donkey. It's really difficult for me to love the person that does have the bumper sticker, that is shouting what they want me to believe, that is maybe even pushing what feels like hate sometimes, and that's sitting there in that, or somebody that just makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I think right now, just don't, you don't have to say names, think of somebody in your life who is the other. Who might that be? And then how do I start to respond in love to that person? Well, the first great news I have for you is, number one, just rest in Jesus' love. 1 John 4, 7 through 9, we sang the song. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whomever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So for me in my life, and I do this incredibly imperfectly, when I'm struggling to love the other, when I'm struggling to figure out how to express the love of Christ to somebody else, my prayer most frequently is Jesus help. It's two words. It works really great. comes out all the time. Jesus help, Jesus help. But the second prayer is give me love for that person. Help me see this child of yours through your eyes, God. And I just rest in the fact that love comes from God and it doesn't come from me. And so I ask God to start putting love into me for the other person. This is why, in part, our marriage works. Because we both trust that God will give us love for one another. And in those moments where marriage can be tough, I pray that prayer. God, help me love Kevin in such a way that honors you. And why don't you just send me the love you have for Kevin. Send that into me and let me express that to him. And I'm not going to rely on myself. Besides, you know, love is not a feeling. It's action. That's the parable. So ask Jesus to help you. That's the first thing. If you have somebody in your life you're struggling to love right now, or a group of people, or a, you know, whatever, a political denomination. I had a friend on Facebook right this week. You know, if this candidate wins, I'm moving, I'm going out of the country. And then he also said, and if this candidate wins, I'm going out of the country. Basically, I'm just looking to do some international travel in the next few months. That's what his post was, and I thought it was very funny. But there are people maybe that you'll meet that are saying, I don't want to be here if this or if this. How do you, if, if we're in those camps, how do we struggle to love the other in those conditions? We trust God, we ask for him, and that becomes a regular begging on your knees kind of prayer. God, help me love my kids today. Help me love my spouse today. Help me reach out in love to people who aren't like me. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. So when we start to love one another, all of a sudden we start to experience God's presence in us. And that love is starting to be made complete in beautiful and incredible ways. Jesus' teaching on this is radical. I don't know if you've read the Sermon on the Mount recently, but if you open up in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You may have heard it said, love your neighbors but hate your enemies. Do you guys remember Jesus said that? And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. By the way, nowhere in the Bible does it say hate your enemies. 
That's not in the Torah or the Hebrew scriptures. Where that is said is in the Dead Sea community of the Essenes. They were a sect, a, a different kind of sect of Judaism and a kind of an offshoot. And they had decided to remove themselves fully from the community and to hate everybody not like them. That that was their response, to try to remain pure and to follow God. So Jesus says, by the way, you may have heard it said, hate your enemies, but I'm telling you we have to love them. And that's pretty radical stuff. That's pretty difficult stuff. And then at the end of that, he says, okay, so yeah, just keep loving them as your father does. Be perfect like him. Be made complete. And this is what I think that means. Allow God's love to be in you and be complete in your love for one another and for the other. The second thing we can do after we rest in Christ and start to ask him to love people for us, through us, is we start asking questions. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And who is my neighbor? Jesus, let him tell you a story. Let him tell a story in your workday. Let him tell a story as you engage with somebody of another faith. Let him tell a story as you engage with somebody from a different sexual orientation. Let him start to tell a story of how you might be encountering somebody who's not quite like you, and you're going to start to see that love become manifest in your life in a different and in a new way. When Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? And when those questions start to get asked, guess what? When we ask questions and when we let Jesus ask questions, he is able to disrupt our stereotypes. And he is able to change how we live. But it doesn't happen unless we start asking questions. And I'm going to confess my own sin. When I was a kid growing up, I worked really hard on racial reconciliation. I, you know, I loved doing the MLK days, and I did a Martin Luther King Jr. speech contest, and I did all those great things. But in my community, there was a lot of um, migrant workers that would come through, particularly from South America, from Latin America, from Mexico. And my experience growing up in high school was that I was getting a lot of harassment by some of the men in that community. And so I didn't know, I was, I thought I was so evolved and I was working so hard on all of my racial reconciliation. And then I went to Mexico on a missions trip and I realized that I was wanting, feeling a little anxious, wanting to cross to the other side of the street or wanting to hold my purse more tightly, which is hard to do when you're in Mexico. Okay. You're not going to, I'm not going to avoid every person. And I hadn't even realized that that was in me. And I had to confess that sin, and I had to recognize that I had a negative experience in my life that had changed me, and I needed to work on that. And so I had to start asking questions. Am I feeling this way? Oh my goodness, I'm feeling this way. I had no idea. It wasn't conscious. I had no idea I was doing it. Oh my goodness, I'm doing that. I have to stop doing that. How do I stop doing that? I have to build friendships. I have to build relationships. I have to start learning the language. I have to start doing, do you see what I'm saying? You have to start asking some questions of yourself. You have to start saying, where am I prejudiced? Where am I putting people off the island? Where am I allowing somebody to be the other? And where am I not allowing them to draw near? When we start asking those questions and when we let Jesus start asking those questions of us, he disrupts our stereotypes and he teaches us how to love. Third and final thing, if you're thinking, how on earth do I do this? We demonstrate our love through action. The good Samaritan went to the man. He didn't go, oh, I, I, I just feel compassion for you. 
He went to him and then he acted. He bandaged. He helped. He put on a donkey. He spent money. He made a difference in that person's life through action. Love is not something you feel. It's something that you do. It's nice when you feel it, but you don't always get to feel it. But we do it because it's how we demonstrate our love for God and our love for each other, including the other. So what we want to do today is we want to invite you guys to decide who in your life is the other. And maybe the other is somebody in this room you haven't met yet. Maybe the other is somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody in your home. And Pastor Kevin and a few of our volunteers are going to start passing out pieces of paper. And don't worry, no one's going to look at these pieces of paper. But we want to invite you to write the name of the other That one person in your life, maybe you have a whole list, the entire side of this family, right? Um, You start listing names. Maybe for you it is a list. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's an orientation. Maybe it's a faith community. What is it for you that's representing a place where you feel invited to start to change your heart through the power of Jesus Christ alone? You're invited to change your heart to love somebody else. And then Kevin and I have up here a bucket, a wooden bucket, and we're going to invite you all to put these names into the bucket. It's our new bucket list, okay? And together as a community, we're going to pray over the names in this bucket. We're not going to read them. We're just going to pray over the names in this bucket and ask God together as a community to help us love the other. That's our hope today, is that we start to push to extend ourselves to change our behavior. So the first thing you can do is to ask Jesus to help. The second thing you can do is to start asking questions of Jesus and of yourself. And the third thing is to start taking action. So take a few minutes. Write down the name. You don't have to show your neighbor, particularly if it's them. Don't show your name. Write down the name of somebody that you're striving to love. Put that name, fold it all up, crumple it up tight. And we're going to let you come up and we're going to pray over these names and these people. And we're going to ask God to pray and push his Holy Spirit over us as we seek to love. You know, one of the reasons why Spark meets in a synagogue is because we have intentionally reached out to our Jewish brothers and sisters here, and they've intentionally reached out to us to form a friendship where we can love one another on the things we hold in common. And we're thankful for that, and we still need to work on it. There's a lot we can keep doing as we want to express our love to one another, including those very, very different from us. Heavenly Father God, we just ask right now that you would bless the people represented in this bucket, God. This is our new bucket list, and we ask, Lord, that you would increase our love for these people, increase our love for people that have hurt us, that have wronged us, that have harmed us in difficult ways, God. Jesus, just as you taught us to forget the bitterness and the history that had come between Samaritans and between those in Judah. God, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us how to forget and how to move forward in loving action and concern for the other. Lord, teach us that we also, to somebody else, are also the other and that we want to be loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. God, help us. We need help. Pour out your Holy Spirit on each person in this room. Fill us up with your love and bless the people in this bucket. In Jesus' name, amen.